All right. Um, please open your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 11. We're in uh, chapter 11, verses 17 through 34. If you don't have a Bible with you, uh, we do have the text on the screen, so you'll be able to follow along. I'll give you a sec, because it looks like a lot of you are scrolling. All right, <laughs> let's pray. Jesus, I, I, uh, I pray that your word would speak to your people, that we would be lifted up by it, that we would be reoriented by it, that it wouldn't simply be something that gives us good spiritual vibes, but something that results in changed lives. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. When the, um, when the gospel first went to the, the area we call India now, the first people to believe in Jesus and form a church were people called outcasts. Those of you guys might might know a little bit about how the class or caste system in India works, right? There's you have the the priests at the top, the rulers and warriors next, the the uh, um, merchants under them, and then farmers and laborers under them, and then outside of the caste are the people who do like clean up excrement and dead bodies, and those are called outcasts. And in Indian society, if you were in caste, to this day, you really don't associate with people who are outcast. They call them the untouchables. In, in Indian society, there was kind of this idea, some folks are just better than others. And the interesting thing is that the, 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 the gospel of Jesus took hold among these outcasts. But the missionaries were a little worried that no one in caste was coming to Christ at all. And then there, the, there was this guy, a young man named Roberto de Nobili, de Nobili, sorry, Portuguese name screwed it up. Um, he went and he studied the situation and said, you know, we're doing this all wrong if we want to reach in caste people. First of all, we wear leather shoes and, and you know, like Western European garb and all that sort of thing. And, uh, and, and so he started dressing like, you know, the Brahmins and, and observing their customs and washing and diet and everything else. And lo and behold, some, some Brahmin folks started coming to Christ, but they had a problem. These Brahmin people, it was simply a non-starter that they would worship with the outcasts. And so what Roberto ended up doing starting a church for Brahmin only. And then they had, right, they had a church for each section of the caste. They took Christ's church and just mapped it right on to the class structures of their society. I'm sure glad we don't do that. I'm kidding. Uh, every society does this. Every society has a class structure of some sort. Now in America, it's different, right? It's not as hardened. You can be born low, so to speak, and rise pretty high inside your lifetime, but it's, it's there, right? There is an idea that we all inherit. Some people are just higher. They're better. They're more high-end. Think of the word classy. That's classy. You know what that means? That's something that belongs to the higher class, and it's a complicated thing. It's partly money, partly family connections, the family that you're born into, it's your educational attainment, it's your, your success in life, all those sorts of things make up what class you kind of fit into. 
And there, we see this in, in big ways, like big, big structural things, like access to education. Think of this. The, the Congress, you know, the People's House, you know what percentage of people went to elite four-year institutions? About 95%. You know what the percentage is for the American people, like adult Americans? 25% have a four-year degree, period, much less from some elite institution. Right? It gives you an idea of the political folks come from a much more connected cast. They have the resources and connections to get into these elite institutions and, and then move on to, to political work. Being like, it, even if you go to a really good school, all of you who have tried, you know that you need to be inside of professional networks to get the best jobs. Well, guess what? Guess who's the best connected people? People who were born close to the top of the ladder, right? Having capital to go to college, to start a business, overwhelmingly, like we love rags to riches stories, but that's not really how entrepreneurship typically works. Usually starts with, you know, I was born middle class and I worked hard with what I inherited to get to be upper middle class, you know? Like, we see this in the church too. Think of how much we regard as wise people who are high social achievers. You know, I've been to a lot of Christian conferences and I can tell you five, six times I've heard from, hey, here's this guy who like was born upper middle class, became super rich, he bought the Miami Dolphins. Let's learn from him how to follow Jesus. It's all good, I'm glad he bought the Miami Dolphins. But you know what I've never seen? I've never seen Ashley Johnson. You know who Ashley Johnson is? Yeah, she's, she's a single mom from rural Ohio who raised three kids and like they all went to college and they all did great. They're super healthy and she stayed sane. I want her wisdom, but you're never gonna hear her. You know why? It's because she's the wrong class. Right? We, don't, we don't consider that wisdom. We give huge preference to people who are higher. Now this isn't to, this isn't like bashing people who are, who are successful. That's not what I'm saying. What I am saying is are we just gonna take the church and map it right onto the class structures of the world? Like we all, this is something, we, we don't know where we learned it, right? But you know someone's class kind of at a glance. You go to Whole Foods, you're like high end. They're high end, they're at Whole Foods. You go to Safeway, it's a whole different story, right? Different neighborhoods, different schools. In, in some churches, and you guys have told me these stories, social advancement and social standing is the entire point of the church, right? You go there to be seen, to fit in a, in a social category and perhaps advance it. You're there to network. You're there to improve social standing. There are there are large parts of the church where your high social standing, your ability to hobnob with who's who, is like a sign of divine favor, right? In every case, we may not even know it but there are invisible signs hung up that say to some, this is for you and to others, you gotta go. 
It is everywhere in our society. And the question is, are we going to be conscious of this, or are we just going to map the church right onto the class structure of our society? Because that's what they were doing in ancient Corinth, and that's why Paul is writing this part of 1 Corinthians that starts in 11.17. Let's look at the text together, starting at verse 17. It says, in the following directives, I have no praise for you. That's not good. When Paul's starting a section like that, like you're like, oh gosh, it's bumpy right up till now, but now. He says, for your meetings do more harm than good. Your church services do more harm than good. What? In the first place, I hear that when you come together as a church, there are divisions among you, and to some extent, I believe it. I honestly don't know why Paul's shocked. We've seen division throughout, like present throughout the church at Corinth in all kinds of ways, but this is a new division we're going to learn about. He says, no doubt there have to be differences among you to show which of you have God's approval. I'm 100% convinced this is Paul being super sarcastic. It's like, yeah, good thing you've divided. I at least will be able to tell who the real Christians are. You know, that's what he's saying. But listen, listen to what this issue is. And starting in verse 20. So then when you come together, it is not the Lord's Supper you eat. It's about communion. What? For when you are eating, some of you go ahead with your own private suppers. As a result, one person remains hungry and another gets drunk. Don't you have homes to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God by humiliating those who have nothing? You could literally translate that, the have-nots. What shall I say to you? Shall I praise you? Certainly not in this matter. So our friend is historical context in this case, because we're like, what is going on? How are they doing communion? How is someone getting drunk on these little sealed up cups that we use, you know? It's grape juice for crying out loud, gosh. So there's a number of things we have to take into account. The first thing is how class worked in ancient Roman society. Corinth was not an occupied territory. It was a, it was a um, what's the word I'm looking for? It, it was a consular city. Right, it, it belonged to Rome proper, but it wasn't in Rome's geography. So, a colony. Thank you. It was it, it was a Roman structured city. Okay, and in Rome they had a very intense class system, which you couldn't really move up and down in. Right, you were you were born there. Some people are just better, and they stay better. Even if you were born a noble and became poor for generations, you were still considered better than a rich person who was born at a lower class. It's crazy. So at the top, you had the senatorial class, right? These are the, the famous names that you hear, hear in Roman history, the Caesars and whatnot. Then below them, you had sort of the lesser nobles who would get like government jobs in a place like Corinth. And then you had um, what, what are called the equestrian class. Anyway, they were merchants. A lot of the time they had a ton of money, but were, they couldn't sit at the table with the nobles. They were born into the wrong family. And then you had, you know, your artisans, your cobblers, that sort of thing. And then you had your common class, farmers and laborers. Then you have your former slaves and your slaves at the very bottom. All right. And there were all sorts of places in society where these class differences were observed. And one of the most intense of them was a meal. Okay, so I'm going to show you a, a four floor plan of a Roman house. All right, this, who's excited? All right, so um, so you see the the where the number one is. That's called the atrium. That big room is the front of the house. 
In the middle, there's a fountain. Okay? That is where um, if you were a guest at a dinner and you were lower class, that's where you go. Right? If you're not, if you're not the social equal and male of the, the owner of the house, that's where you go. And then you see number six there? That's called the triclinium. That was the formal dining room. Now, in the triclinium, you'd have couches. You didn't sit. You didn't stand. You know what you did? You laid down to eat. And servants brought you food. And they brought you the best food and the best wine. We have ancient historical sources that talk about, here's how you do a dinner. You need three grades of food and wine. One grade for your equals in the triclinium, another grade for sort of your more favored guests out in the atrium, and then sort of the scraps and the worst of it for the lowest class people. That's the proper way to do it, okay? So we're like, how could one person be hungry and another drunk? It's because they didn't all get the same food. You received food and wine based on your class standing. You see what they had done? They had taken the practice of the Lord's Supper. They had taken Christ's body and mapped it right onto the social structures of their society. That is what Paul is having a problem with. He's saying, you're not having the Lord's Supper here. Why? Because you're not, you're, you're, this isn't what Christ's body is supposed to look like. How does Paul seek to recast and restructure and shape the church? Look where he goes next. Verse 23, he says, For I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you. The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. How does he seek to reshape their practice and their community? The cross. He reminds them the very meaning of the meal that they're partaking is the death of Jesus. He is calling them to be a cross-shaped church instead of a class-shaped church. That inside Christ's body, these fictions that some people are better than others do not exist. And that we have a community shaped by the cross. Now, how does the cross give shape to the church? And, And what does that mean for us? Well, the first way it gives shape to the church is that we are a people in need of the cross. We are a people in need of the cross. Jesus refers in 24 and 25 to a covenant when he says, he, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after, he, after supper, he took the cup saying, this cup is the what? New covenant in my blood. Now, we have some distance. If you don't know what a covenant is, it's hard to understand. A covenant was like a formal agreement like a marriage. It was solemn. It was formal. It was binding. It was so binding that in order to ratify it, you had to kill something. A cow, a pit, anything. Right? And you see this throughout the Old Testament. 
Because you're saying, I'm so committed to you that if I break the deal, what happened to this cow is going to happen to me. That's the covenant curse, death. What Jesus is saying is that we are under a covenant curse that he pays. When he says this is the new covenant in my blood, he is talking about what he is going to do for his people the very next day. We are a people in need of the cross. We are under covenant curse, and Christ took our curse. Now, how does that give shape to a church community? Well, there was once, um, this is a real dude, a guy named King Canute. Anybody fans of King? Anyway, forget it. Um, King Canute, by all reports, he really did love the Lord. Like, he was a, he was a, a follower of Jesus for real. And there's this story where he goes out to like this hermitage where this, this holy man lived. And he has his herald like rap on the door. Bop, bop, bop. And he says, who is it? It's King Canute. He said, who? And he's like, King Canute, sovereign of Denmark, Norway, and England. And the hermit's like, who is that? He says, King Canute, victor of the battle of such and such over so and so poor schmo. You know? And he's like, I've never heard of that. Don't know who that is. And King Canute gets it. He steps forward himself. He knocks on the door. The hermit says, who is it? And he says, it's Canute, a poor sinner in need of the forgiveness of Jesus. And the hermit opened the door. Recognizing our need for the cross reshapes a community. I don't care how well networked you are. You can't network your way out of covenant curse, folks. I don't care how much money you have. You cannot buy God's forgiveness. No amount of power and connection. Like your class is totally irrelevant. Let me put it in stark terms for you. The guy in the no fear muscle shirt with the MAGA hat and you are the exact same status in the eyes of God. Andy has a Tasmanian devil tattooed. I, I should probably add that. Right? Like you, we, let's be honest. If, you're, if you know how to act and all that, you, you see that, oh, I don't belong around this. You know, like you go to a truck stop in Kansas, you're like, man, these folks are different than me. We all know it. We don't like to admit it. But it's true. We all believe that. Guess what? In the eyes of God, you have the same need as them. And George Bush has the same need as you. There is no buying the cross. It is given for free. The church needs to be shaped by the cross, not by class. And, and it's not only the need for the cross that shapes us. It's also what we're supposed to do. Right? The, the purpose of something determines its shape. Compare like a Ferrari, the shape of a Ferrari. What does it do? You know, you get pulled over. And, and then a Cadillac. What do you do? Well, the shape of a Cadillac says do this. You know, that's what you're supposed to do. It's built. The shape of it goes with its purpose. We are a people whose purpose is to proclaim the cross. We are a people who proclaim the cross in word, right? There's no shortage of places in the Bible that say we need to proclaim in word, say out loud our hope in Christ. 
but also in deed. And that is what Paul is taking issue with. Look at verses 27 through 33. He says, So then, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of sinning against the body and blood of the Lord. Everyone ought to examine themselves before they eat of the bread and drink from the cup. For those who eat and drink without discerning the body of Christ, eat and drink judgment on themselves. That is why many among you are weak and sick, and a number of you have fallen asleep. But if we were more discerning with regard to ourselves, we would not come under such judgment. Nevertheless, when we are judged in this way by the Lord, we are being disciplined so that we will not be finally condemned with the world. So what's he saying is the problem? Like a lot of the time we hear this don't take communion in an unworthy manner, and it means I have sin, right? Now, should we repent of our sin all the time, like every day, take it out the garbage, right? Is Paul mainly saying you, you have unconfessed sin? No, he's saying what? The table that you're taking is a proclamation of the gospel that Jesus died and made a new community, slave and free, doesn't matter, Greek and Jew, doesn't matter, male and female, doesn't matter, class doesn't matter, and their proclamation does not match their deeds. Their deeds of practicing the class structures, taking, taking Christ's church and just mapping it onto the class structures of their world, undermines their proclamation of the gospel. That's what he's talking about. That's what it means to take communion in an unworthy manner. That the very meal that celebrates the unity of the body and that Jesus died for all, they are practicing disunity. See that? What does it look like for deeds to undermine words? Well, I remember back when I lived in Nashville and Al Gore was first you know, kind of beating the drum about climate change, a very important message everybody needs to hear. Count me among the non-skeptics. But some investigative reporting was done into Al Gore's lifestyle. And he's taken these chartered jets, hugely inefficient, and he had a 14,000 square foot house that he heated in a really inefficient way. And it gave people ammo to just say, hey, the words are fine. The deeds say you don't believe it. So why should I? We are a people who proclaim the cross. We talk about a shape of a community. It's not just the words you say, but the practices in the community. Right? That the deeds would match the words. We cannot be a community that proclaims grace and forgiveness and practices legalism and harshness and rejection. We cannot be a community that says we're for everybody if we're going to have an event in the mountains that only costs 600 bucks and as long as you have an SUV, you can go. That doesn't work, does it? That's the deeds undermining the words. So when we ask, how does the cross shape us? How does it take us off of the, off of the shape of class and onto the shape of the cross it's to, say that it's to say we're shaped by having consistency between word and deed. So it's, it's, it's our, we're shaped by our need of the cross as people who proclaim the cross. And then this, this is going to sound a little odd, but we bear a responsibility in the shape of the church. Everyone who is part of it bears a responsibility for the shape of the church. 
we have to ask is, is, is the way that we're setting up church look like the cross or look like something else? I used to be in a band and we would tour around and, and summer tour meant playing festivals and we'd play like these Christian music festivals, right? Now, when we started, we would play on the side stages. And here's what it was like to, to roll up on the side stage. You get there at noon for sound check. You know, it's 100 degrees, 150 with heat index in Pennsylvania in a field, like no shade. And they show you to the backstage and it literally is just the back of the stage. You know, they're like, here you go, you can change here. I'm like, oh, oh, good, is there a towel or it? No, no towel. Okay, so where should we sit? Well, there's a chair, literally. We, well, there's a chair, you guys can share a folding chair, and, and if you want water, that's too bad. And food, don't even think about it, right? And, and, and so then when we kind of like got more popular, we started playing the main stages. And I remember the first time walking into a main stage backstage right like you you walk in they have these like portable units that are all air conditioned so you step in it's like ah air conditioning they have like bean bags and couches and like a gopher sir do you need me to go get lutrimin for you or whatever <laughs> you know they have snacks and food and water and you're just like and 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 i remember thinking to myself like wait is this what's Christian, Jesus, God, Bible. Why do the less popular groups get less and the more popular groups get treated like expensive pandas? You know? It, it didn't seem like the way it was set up was very reflective of the truths we see in the Bible. So we're a people who are building an institution of the cross. And yes, I use that word institution on purpose. I hope you cringe. Because for a lot of us, like institution, no, it's supposed to be rootin' tootin' freewheelin', right? We are an institution founded by Jesus. Don't believe me? You have some sort of idea that the early church was primitive and grassroots? Nonsense. First Corinthians is one of the first books written in the New Testament. In it, we see offices. We see roles. We see restrictions on order of worship and instructions for how to conduct a service properly. We see official doctrine, a lot of correction of official doctrine, right? And that is true throughout the New Testament. It has always been intended to be an institution founded by Jesus, but an institution meant to display the cross. Look at how Paul reorients them at the end of this passage in 33 and 34. He says, so then my brothers... When you gather to eat, you should all eat together. The, the Greek literally says wait upon your brothers, not like wait in time, but bring them food. The, the idea that Paul has, he says anyone who is hungry should eat something at home. I love that. It's like if you're too hungry, some of you this applies to, eat at home. <laughs> so that when you meet together, it may not result in judgment. But what Paul has envisioned is that everybody be together in the same, you get the same food, you have the same place to sit, right? That's what it looks like for them to be cross-shaped. It's an institution meant to display the cross. In short, a person who wants to more deeply understand the cross should be able to look at the church and say, oh, that's what it looks like to have a community built around the cross. Now, 
to address this idea of isn't the church supposed to be sort of organic and grassroots? I mean, I even heard hear some some pastors talk about like, you know, it just needs to be a, a movement and let the spirit do it. And any any structures you build is just going to ruin it. Here's the thing. If you don't intentionally build a structure, will you not have a structure? No, you will. It just won't be a thought out structure. You know what it'll be? It'll be a default structure. You know what we default to? Whatever we learned. Now, I am pro-non-denominational churches. I'm not the enemy of non-denominationalism. It is just an observation that many churches were like, let's be non-institutional. Let's just whoop do whoop right? They end up structuring themselves like an American corporation. There's a board. There's a CEO named the pastor. There are staff. There are customers, and success is measured by bottom line, financial bottom line, right? That ends up being the structure more often than not. I know there are exceptions. I'm saying it's frequently true. We default to whatever we've inherited from our culture. So if we don't have an intentional structure, we will still have a structure. It just won't be the structure that looks anything like the cross. So what does it look like? to build an institution shaped by the cross. Well, it's like Jesus said, it's that the least are the greatest. It means that to be a leader is to be a servant. That, that, the, that humility and doing jobs no one wants to do is the prime qualification for leadership. <laughs> That's different, isn't it? Not the person who pushes to get their way not the person who impresses you with their gifts, but the servant. That's who's called to serve. That we look for invisible signs that we've hung. That by the grace of God, we can identify where we have built the church that that says to people who who are, you know, outside of the the class majority or whatever, those signs that say you're not supposed to be here, and we take them down to the best of our ability. It's to make a structure that's accessible to everybody, right? A lot of the time you get this inner circle thing happening. Oh, you want to be in a community group? You kind of have to know the right people. You want to lead? You want to be on the music team? There's no process. You just kind of have to worm your way into the inner circles, right? You want to get to be one of the, 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 the officers of the church or something like that? Best of luck. You better, better buddy up to the right folk. Or are you going to structure it with clear on-ramps for how to get involved, for how to, how to become a member, for how to, how to become a leader in the rest of it? Right? Is it going to be accessible only to those who know how to, how to act in certain class, uh, class gatherings, right? The church must be shaped by the cross, not by class. We're a people in need of the cross. We're a people who proclaim the cross. And we're a people who build an institution of the cross. One of my favorite <laughs> stories of what this looks like, back in the day in the, in the 1960s, there was a very buttoned up guy named Chuck Smith in Southern California. And, um, and he was a pastor at a, at a good, you know, buttoned up church in, in Costa Mesa, California. And, um, and he, was, he was preaching the gospel to like street kids, like hippie street kids at the time. And some of them were receiving Christ and started coming to the church. And there was this massive backlash from the people in the church. 
They said, we just got new carpet, Pastor Chuck. They come in with their bare feet. They're all dirty. They're getting the carpet dirty. Right? They're the wrong kind of people to be in here. You hear that, right? So one weekend, after a meeting like that, Chuck Smith single-handedly tore out all the carpet in this huge auditorium. And everybody came in for service. He says, well, they won't mess up the carpet now, guys. <laughs> he understood. We are to be, the church is to be cross-shaped, not class-shaped. Please pray with me. Jesus, we pray that, that you would give us eyes to see where we just fall into the patterns of our world. And that you would give us the grace and the wherewithal to do things differently. To do things so that this would be a community, and whatever community we're in, that our communities would begin to look and feel more like Jesus.